Welcome to School Nutrition Dietitian. I'm your host, Dahlia Kinsey. I work with businesses and food service programs all over the country as a registered dietitian and school nutrition specialist to save operations time and money by maximizing employee productivity and happiness with inclusive wellness programs. Every week, I bring you tips, tricks, and inspiration from fellow professionals in school nutrition and related fields so that you can level up your professional development. This week, I have a special guest. This is the start of a series of episodes with international food service workers. It's fascinating to hear what child food service is like in other parts of the world and what other people are doing in child nutrition and in nutrition in general. We're starting out in Taiwan. We will also be speaking to guests from Spain and Australia. This is going to be a fun series, a little bit of a deviation from the focus on everything that we're moving through right now. Most of us need a little bit of a break, so this is what this series is going to be. All right, let's get right into it. School nutrition dietitian here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus, time to handle business. Breakfast, you don't want to miss it. Help your body to replenish. Clean food, clear mind. That is the vision. Tune in to the school nutrition dietitian. Hi, Sean. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here. So I wanted to hear a little bit about how you ended up doing what you do right now. So we met at ANC. So we met at a pre-conference session, but your story was the most fascinating out of everybody that I met while I was there. So I wanted to have you on to share what you're doing and what the food culture is like where you are right now. So let's just start with how'd you end up in nutrition? It was almost by accident. My Most of my work experience is actually in the uh, fast food industry or quick QSR industry. It, like I said, it was just by chance. Uh, there was an opening for a food service director here many years ago. And I, in 2001, I applied for the job and was hired and haven't looked back since then. It's actually been very, very enjoyable. So what was your experience like when you were doing commercial food service versus what you're doing now? Well, the hours are actually uh, a little different. When I was working, when I had my own restaurants on the outside and worked for corporate McDonald's, the hours could be very, very long. I mean, there were a lot of evenings where I you know, would work until, you know, say nine or 10 o'clock, a lot of weekends. Whereas now, I mean, the hours are still long but I think they're much more reasonable uh, compared to the hours that I was working before. Right. It's yeah. I mean, it's been very enjoyable working around the students and I also have a fantastic staff. I mean, that makes a huge difference. I mean, a lot of them are experienced. I'm going on year 19 at Taipei American school, but there are still a fair number of employees who've been there longer than I have. And that's crazy. Wow, that's amazing. That tells you a lot about the job satisfaction. So you kind of glossed over the fact that you don't live in the United States anymore. Tell us where you're working. I work for Taipei American School. I'm in Taipei, which is the capital of Taiwan. 
you know, people have asked me, you know, what's it like working in this kind of environment? And to tell you the truth, I think there are a lot of similarities. Obviously, the biggest difference is, is that we speak Chinese. Chinese is a language that's spoken in our kitchen. Chinese is a language that's spoken most of the day, unless I interact with some of our Western teachers. But yeah, it's you and you really don't think about it until people mention it. I mean, that's yeah, it's I guess it's very much like, say, for example, food service workers. You may be working in Los Angeles, where the majority of the uh, kitchen workers uh, speak Spanish. You don't you don't really think about that, but that's just the language that they use. Right. Exactly. Well, what part of the U.S. did you move from and did you speak Chinese when you first saw that position posted? Yes, I did. I actually studied Chinese in college back in the early 80s. Most recently, but this is like I said, it's not recent, but I mean, you know, we're talking a few decades ago. I lived in Washington, D.C. I'm originally from California, but I've moved all over the U.S. Uh, because my father was a civilian contractor for the military. So I, you know, like I said, moving around is not new to me. Right. That definitely adds a layer about why you thought that that was something you could do. Because I know a lot of people are really afraid to work abroad. Like it, it is very discombobulating to go where you don't know how everything works. Something as simple as how do I place a phone call if I don't have phone service? It, that's a big deal when you're away from home. It's no big deal when you're here. But since you already traveled a lot, you knew it, it's doable. It can be a little cumbersome, but being abroad is not impossible. Oh, yeah. And I think especially after you've lived in a place for so long, I mean, a lot of people will say, wow, I mean, that's that's crazy. I mean, how can you live uh, in a place like that for so long? You know, do you speak the language? I said, yes, I do. Um, I'm very fluent. And it's just something that you kind of take for granted because, I mean, you do it every day. And it's like anything else. I think, you know, if I lived in Korea or, you know, somewhere like Saudi Arabia or something, I'm sure that I would learn the languages there. And I mean, it's just like anything else. I mean, once you get over that initial hump, it's actually fairly easy. People often ask me, they say, you know, could you ever live in the States again? I said, certainly. Do you experience reverse culture shock whenever you visit? I'm like, not really, because I'm originally from there. So, I mean, it doesn't, I guess I'm happy no matter where I am. I mean, it doesn't really make much of a difference. That's a great way to be, and that is unique. And uh, that's probably why people keep asking all these questions. And you're like, "What? It's just normal because you're an adaptable person." But it does make a lot of sense. You take yourself with you everywhere you go. So if you are happy and you pr- approach life in a certain way, it's going to travel with you. Oh yeah, and I think I mean for me, um, as long as I'm learning something new, it doesn't matter where I live. I'm happy. And no matter where you are, there's always something to be learned. There's always somebody that can teach you something new, you know, given that everyone's background is different. Yeah, Uh, that's a mouthful. I have read a lot about people who have a learning or growth mindset being happier than other people. So that you said that, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. The learning never stops. One of the things that I think is interesting is that you went from college level Chinese to actually using it because there's a lot of people that even they took years and years of Spanish and somehow never managed to go beyond being able to read it. I've read that it takes like 10 years to really start to feel comfortable with Chinese. Was that true in your experience? For me, because I was immersed. So for me, it was probably closer. I mean, I was fluent after living here for a year. I mean, I could get by, 
but I didn't really feel truly comfortable in the language. In other words, I couldn't speak without thinking in English for probably five years. Okay. But once five years passed, I mean, it was fairly easy after that. I didn't have many problems, but it was yeah. tough initially. Talk about cold turkey, I mean, because <laughs> you're used to being on top of things, being able to get things quickly done. But the language barrier uh, was challenging, to say the least. It was, it was really difficult initially. Uh, yeah. and there was a part of me that wanted to give up because I'd studied Spanish before, and that was fairly easy. But Chinese was a different bird, <laughs> a whole different level. I can just, uh, I can only imagine because I speak Spanish, but I remember when I was like 17, I made a trip to El Salvador for the sake of immersion. And before the trip, when I was only speaking to my bilingual friends, where if I didn't know a word, we would just speak Spanglish. I felt pretty good. I'm like, this is going to be fine. It's going to be so fun. But I remember on like the second week, I wanted to rent a movie and the title had not been translated directly because they never are. And I was mm -hmm. just so frustrated. I knew it was available and I just could not divine what they had changed the title to. And, and I don't know why that was like the straw that broke the camel's back, but I just burst into tears. I was just so tired of struggling to be understood. <laughs> so I yeah. cannot imagine what it would be like with Chinese. I guess I would just do like a lot of crying. It was, well, it was difficult because I remember when I first arrived here back in the early 80s, the sanitation standards back then were very different uh, than they are, you know, compared to now. And I remember getting sick. I was sick for a good three months and I didn't speak enough Chinese to be able to say that, you know, I believe that I have, you know, some sort of, you know, bacteria infection picked up from, you know, the sushi. I couldn't tell them that, no, this is not a cold. It was difficult, very frustrating at first, because I assumed that a fair number of doctors would speak English, but that wasn't the case back then. You had to be able to speak Chinese, and it was rough. Wow. Not be able to tell or if you tell them what's wrong, maybe they don't understand. And they tell you in Chinese, and it's like, well, no, blah, blah, blah. Well, how do I say this? And you, yeah, it was it was difficult. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that's a nightmare. It really ups your empathy for people who, you know, they move to the states not because they want to, because they have to, and the language is very different. It's different when you're coming like from another kind of Latin-y type of language, like Spanish, Italian. You know, that's not as major. But imagine having to move to the U.S. and you didn't want to, and then you get sick or something. Wow, that's that's rough. Yeah, I'm sick. I wish I could tell you what I think is wrong with me. Oh my god! <laughs> I wish I could understand you when you tell me what you think is wrong with me. <laughs> All very crucial, very crucial. So it was impossible to find interpreters too, I guess. Back then, not a lot of people spoke English. I mean, there were some people, but I mean, certainly not people that you ran across every day. I mean, the average person if you saw them on the streets and you needed to communicate with them, you know, ask them for directions, it was a hopeless situation if you didn't speak Chinese. Very, very difficult to get mm -hmm. by. Where did you see the job posted? In 2001, was this on a job board online or where was it? Well, because back then, uh, we didn't, there weren't a lot of online postings I and mean, the internet wasn't quite that big around that time. So it was actually in a newspaper. Uh, and okay. 
I was an entrepreneur for several years and I had originally thought that maybe I would go to mainland China and start a very small fried chicken chain. As a, as a matter of fact, that's what I had, you know, that was the original plan, but it fell through. And so I interviewed and then found out that, hey, I mean, this is an attractive position. And like I said, I never looked back. I mean, it's, I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. And, and I think a lot of times when people work at a job for you know, several years or 10 years, and then they eventually burn out and want to move on to something new, and that hasn't happened. I mean, it seems like, I mean, even though I've you know, been working a lot of hours lately since we're in the middle of our peak uh, holiday catering season, but still, I mean, it only seems like it's been a few years, but you know, we're really going to be uh, hitting 20 very soon. So, Oh, wow. That's awesome. When you moved from California, you probably had a lot of exposure to the type of food that you were going to see there. But when it comes to food culture among young people or students, what were some of the differences that you noticed? I know overall we're probably all very similar because of globalization and everything, but what are some things that stand out to you? Well, the biggest difference is rice. I mean, people eat rice a lot here. The, you know, whereas like in the U.S., I mean, it tended to be more, you know, pasta along with bread, whereas here people don't eat as much pasta. I mean, you see it, but it's not, you know, as, say, as common as it is in the U.S., you know, you know, in bread. I mean, you know, maybe you'll have bread for dinner with your salad, whereas people here don't really do that quite as much unless you go to a Western restaurant. So it's, I mean, it's very different in that sense. When I look at the food that we sell in our food service department, when we look at, say, for example, serving line entrees, normally 65 to 70 percent of the entrees that we sell in the serving line are, you know, tend to be you know, international, Chinese, whereas the other, well, actually, I should say Chinese, and the other 35% tend to be Western, or as we have called it lately, international, you know, other, something other than Chinese. Do the kids really demand that? Is that something that's popular, like when they're out eating with their parents? Is that what they might be eating in the street? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, Absolutely. And you can tell just by putting it on the serving line. I mean, people just snap it up. Whereas if it's Western, uh, maybe. It depends on the item. And there are a lot of Western items that, yeah, you know, if they don't appear too often. I mean, people are really not going to ask, hey, why haven't I seen that, you know, that spaghetti dish of yours? But if you have like a Chinese uh, roasted chicken leg or something, or Chinese roasted drumstick, and you haven't served that for a while, people will ask, mm. hey, why have you know, put that on the menu lately? Gotcha. So yeah, there's a big difference. Now that is interesting. What are some of the entrees you can list off, like the really popular Chinese entrees that the kids keep asking for? Well, for example, the Chinese roasted chicken leg. Uh, people like that a lot. People also like, you know, the stir fried noodles. They like fried rice. We have uh, several different kinds of fried rice, and they all like those. We also have other dishes, other like say chicken dishes that they really like. We also have certain, say, pork dishes that they like. There are a number of things. The Chinese dumplings, those are always popular. And so are you guys scratch cooking there? Yes, indeed. That's one of the things that sets us apart from a lot of the other <laughs> operations in the U.S. I would say 95 plus percent of the items that we produce in our food service department are made from scratch. And that not only includes the serving line, but we also have the snack bar pizza bar, those items are made from scratch. Wow. And so how do you manage that? How many people are on your team? 
including myself, I think we have 43 now. Okay. And how many students do you serve typically? We have a little over 2,300 students and about 500 employees. So transaction count wise, we probably average around about 3,000, about 3,500 a day. Mm-hmm. And we also have another uh, outfit that's upstairs, but it's not part of a part of our food service. If you factor in those transactions, we're probably around 4,000 a day. Okay. So, I mean, it's pretty, really busy. We're a high volume, ultra high volume operation. Yes, that's pretty massive. Now, did you feel like corporate McDonald's prepared you for that? I work with someone who worked for corporate McDonald's and she's explained that a lot of the misconceptions that we have about McDonald's are because we've gone to stores that were corporate locations and that the training that you go through at McDonald's is actually amazing. Like they have a McDonald's university. I didn't know that. So how did that prepare you for what you do now? Well, the training and, you know, particularly on the quantitative quantitative analysis end is second to none. I mean, they can, you know, teach you how to read, you know, P and L statement, teach you how to analyze your different cost ratios, McDonald's is a very uh, numbers-oriented company. You know, it's all about numbers. I mean, obviously, they're good in, you know, working with people, you know, great benefits. But I think in terms of being able to sit down and look at, you know, different sales data, break that down, and come up with a, you know, solid analysis, they're very, very good when it comes to that. And I took a lot of that with me when I went to Taipei American School. So, you know, if there are certain issues that crop up, I mean, all you have to do is look at different reports and you can pretty much know, you know, what direction to, to go in. Right. So, yeah, I think really, I mean, it was a blessing in disguise to have worked for them. They taught me a lot. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So when it comes to catering, you said that's something else that you guys do. Is that just to build funds? Is your program not subsidized by the government like our programs often are here? No, not subsidized. We are self-operated and we have, we're expected to be self-sufficient. I mean, if we're subsidized at all, I mean, occasionally it you know, will come from the school, but not from the government. Gotcha. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it makes it a little bit more challenging. I mean, obviously there's more you know, pressure in terms of, you know, managing your cost and whatnot. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's a little different because people will often ask me, like when I attend the, you know, the uh, SNA annual conference, you know, are you guys subsidized? You know, you know, they ask me about commodities and I'm like, commodities, what, 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 what? I mean, we don't, yeah, that doesn't, we're not, we don't, we have no access to, to anything like that. And does anybody there or subsidizing is not something that's done in Taiwan? As far as I know, I mean, the government, maybe for local Taiwanese schools, I think there is, you know, they are subsidized to a certain extent, but definitely not our school. How does that affect your freedom? And how has, when you go to SNA and you hear about people looking at the meal pattern and kind of going back and forth about sodium limits, how healthful do you think the meals are there? Would limits from an external source hurt or help? Well, I mean, I think just being independent like this has actually helped us. We have more flexibility, you know, in terms of what we put on the menu. Our operation is also closely scrutinized. I mean, people do look. I mean, we do have outside consultants. People will come in, take a look at the menu, you know, analyze it, you know, for nutritional value and any areas that maybe, you know, need improvement. For example, maybe, you know, dish X, you know, the sodium content needs to be reduced. 
So instead of using you know regular soy sauce, you know we'll, re we'll use reduced sodium soy sauce for this particular recipe. Maybe instead of you know using maybe you know one certain item that's a little bit higher than uh, certain saturated fat, we'll use another ingredient. So I mean, yeah, I mean there is a little bit of pressure from the outside to make sure that we adhere to certain standards. With the kids paying for all of their meals 100%, do you think that makes them a little more difficult to please? Like, how do you think that affects things? Since you came from working in a business where everybody pays for their own food, maybe this isn't as relevant of a question, but maybe based on the feedback that you see other people giving speakers when you go to conferences, you might have some idea. I think that the students are definitely more finicky when it comes to, you know, the foods that they eat because they're paying for it. And people always say that, oh, you know, you have a captive audience. I mean, we have a very, very high meal participation rate. I would say 95 plus percent of the students purchase their lunches from us. But on the other hand, if it doesn't meet their expectations or if it frequently fails, if our, the food that we offer frequently fails to meet their expectations, they can also purchase from the outside. People can deliver to the school. So I mean, that will definitely cut into our business. And we also have student focus groups, and they're very good about giving us feedback. I mean, if there's something they're not happy with, uh, and that's, you know, one of the biggest challenges with our operation is that, you know, you can never truly please everyone, mm -hmm. you know, but I often say you can listen to everyone. And maybe, you know, there are certain things that we can't do on a regular basis, but just to let you know that we are listening and value your input, then maybe we'll put this on the menu, uh, you know, once every two months or that kind of thing, rather than saying we can't do it at all. So yeah, it's, it's, it's always a challenge because one group will say, this is what we want. And the other group will say, no, we don't want that. We want this. So, you know, you're kind of caught in between and you have to, you know, I often say I have 7,000 bosses. <laughs> you look at the, you know, the, the number of students and plus all the parents and all the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the staff, the faculty and staff, you know, if you add up all those numbers, that's probably somewhere around 7,000. That's just so true. <laughs> that is the way to think about it. And because you are kind of beholden to everybody. Uh, that's a good quote that you, of course, we can't please everybody, but we can listen to everybody. That's an oh. important customer service lesson. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, these are the people that can make or break us. I mean, we have our jobs. We're where we are because of them. Without them, all of it falls apart. You know, yeah. the whole organization will implode and we will cease to exist. <laughs> so, I mean, we're, we're very thankful for our customers and the support that they've given us. And any feedback that they give us, we take it very seriously. Mm -hmm. Customer satisfaction is definitely uh, at the top or near the top of my agenda. I mean, if something's not right, we want to try to make it right. And if they take the time to provide the feedback, if this dish wasn't cooked, it didn't meet their expectations, and at the very least... Maybe give them a refund or give them a coupon, make them feel that, okay, even though this didn't meet their expectations, but they gained something in return. Hmm. So that's, you know, usually what keeps people happy. I wondered about how you control costs with having so much stuff having to be shipped to y'all. Like, do you pay a major premium for how much stuff has to be imported? Well, for the imported items, yes. But fortunately, we're somewhat protected because a lot of the ingredients we can source, source locally, like say, for example, the Chinese dishes, like in the serving line, you know, 
those are made from local ingredients. So you save on the, you know, on the shipping costs. We've been very lucky in that sense. But yes, I mean, if you look at the ingredients that are used in the, you know, many of our Western dishes, we really get hammered. Mm. Uh, if you look at, for example, imported pie filling, I mean, my God, I mean, you know, the price has probably tripled over the last like 15 years. Uh, you look at imported soups, uh, the cost is very high. Imported, you know, say for example, Dannon frozen yogurt that we use, you know, for our Taylor uh, yogurt machine in the snack bar. I mean, that cost has just gone through the roof. I mean, it's really a loss leader for us. I mean, we're not making any money on it. Mm. But, you know, we take money from other items, that kind of thing. So, I mean, I think it balances out or we try to balance it out. But, yes, we do get hammered with imported <laughs> items. So, fortunately, we don't, yeah, we don't use quite as many of those items. Yeah. Now, when it came to mastering some of the cooking techniques or actually, do you cook when you're there? Yes, I do. I mean, I you know, cook both Chinese and Western. And if necessary, I can, you know, help out in the kitchen. I mean, when it gets busy, I can do pretty much anything anybody else does in the kitchen. Yeah. What kind of equipment do you have? A lot, well, it depends on, you know, on the, on the cuisine. But, I mean, we do use imported equipment. You know, we have tilting kettles. For example, you know, if you look at refrigerators and freezers, a lot of that's local now. You know, if we use woks, you know, for stir-frying our food, that's local. But, yeah, the tilting kettles, we have, like, conveyor toasters conveyor pizza ovens, wear washers, commercial wear washers, those items are all imported. Do they have commercials? Are there commercial size woks? Or it would be, oh. Oh yeah, very large, very, very large. Like for example, like for us, like the, you know, based on the uh, current wok size that we use, we can stir fry about 70 portions of fried rice per batch. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, we can crank it out. Yeah. So well, we do, you have to have that because if you had like, you know, the, what I call the you know traditional walk that you use, like, you know, for your family, that kind of thing. I mean, that's, you know, you wouldn't be able to make it fast enough. <laughs> in trouble. Yeah. I've just never seen, I, it didn't occur to me that there would be a commercial size walk. So can you explain what the biggest hurdles are to mastering the different cooking styles? I mean, what do you have to learn to move over to scratch cooking Chinese traditional food? For me, I mean, it's like, you know, if you enjoy cooking, I mean, I knew how to cook before. I mean, I knew how to cook Chinese even before I started working at Taipei American School. So in terms of hurdles, I mean, maybe, yeah, just the different ingredients that maybe you're not familiar with. Yeah. So what is this used for? I mean, it's, yeah, you have to, because, you know, having grown up in the States, I mean, you know what, you know, shortening is used for, you know, what different uh, types of, you know, spices are used for, that kind of thing. But I mean, in, you know, with Chinese cuisine, I mean, many years ago, that was all very new for me. But fortunately, my father-in-law was a chef, a Chinese chef for 50 years. So uh -huh. he actually taught me quite a bit. You know, he was very patient because initially I really didn't know a lot about it. But I mean, I would cook with him in the evenings. You know, we'd make family meals and he'd help me out. And then eventually he would kind of supervise me and then critique each dish that I made. And so I really learned a lot from him. Oh, excellent. So you approached it like it was homework. You worked off the clock to boost your skills. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it's something that I enjoy. I mean, I enjoy cooking. Uh, and It's not just at work. I mean, if I cook at home, I don't mind doing that. It's, you know, and it's just something that you enjoy it. I mean, it's really not 
you know, you all consider it work and you always learn something different. It's always fun to maybe, you know, dine out and, you know, oh, I wonder how this dish is made. Or maybe, you know, see a new recipe uh, or somebody gives you a new recipe. And so it's always, always fun. Yeah, that's a great attitude. I, I don't know why like cooking does not, it is not fun to me. It's always work, <laughs> but I'm willing to do it to get to the end result of having something palatable that's made from recognizable whole foods, you know, but I never do it because it's fun. I wish there was a way to learn that, but I think either you feel that way about it or you don't. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's very much like my, well, I think even in my own family, you know, when I was growing up, my father was the one who, you know, was just, I mean, he was just a phenomenal cook. Whereas my mother, she, you know, was a good cook, but she did it because she had to. But my father was the type of person that would say, you know, like on a Saturday and say, hey, you know, what do you want to eat today? I'm like, I don't know. Uh, Why don't we go down to the fish shop? Why don't we go down to the harbor and see what they have on sale at the fish shop? So you go down there and you'll, you know, maybe, He'll buy something, you know, some kind of sea perch or some sea bass, and then we'll go home. It's like, okay, Daddy, what are you going to do with this? I don't know. Not sure. We'll see what we have in the refrigerator. And so, you know, he'd figure something out, and he'd always throw together something that was just absolutely wonderful. And so my, my house, I always had a full house when I was growing up. A lot of classmates, people would go over to our house because they knew my dad enjoyed cooking. So they would just hang out. And they wouldn't leave until it was like until evening time. My father would come out and say, hey, guys, I'm doing this. How would you like to stay for dinner? And the truth of the matter is they'd already made up their mind several hours prior to that. That's fantastic. Yeah, my, my mom's definitely one of those cook because she had to type of people. So I wonder if it's just that framing from being young and it being such a fun activity is what makes it happen. Or do you have any siblings that don't like cooking? Well, my sister is actually a very good cook, but I don't think she enjoys it as much. Yeah, it just depends on the individual. I mean, some people like it more than others. I mean, it's just like everybody has different hobbies. I mean, maybe, you know, you like to you like to paint, but whereas somebody else can't stand it. So, you know, we're all different. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the ones who like cooking, believe me, you'll never be short on friends. You'll never <laughs> be short on company. There's always somebody coming over. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's funny because this is one of those things that's a crucial life skill, whether or not you like it. And a lot of people have opted out and they've outsourced all their meal prep because they don't enjoy it or they're short on time. And it looks like that's kind of the root of a lot of the problems that we're having in the States is that cooking is not really a thing anymore. And it's a skill set that people are forgetting. Absolutely. I mean, it's changed here. I mean, here you notice not as many people eat at home, they eat out. And so people are very sick. You know, you look at, you know, the cancer incidence rate, it's exploded here. And in the US, cancer, diabetes, I mean, it seems like everybody has either cancer or diabetes. I mean, obviously not everybody, but I mean, quite a few people. I mean, it's so commonplace that people, oh, you have diabetes. Oh, okay. Oh, you have cancer. Oh, okay. I mean, whereas, maybe, you know, 30 years ago, I mean, it wasn't quite as common, you know, especially like when you look at diabetes, I mean, diabetes, that was something that, you know, you had to worry about, you know, once you were probably over like 60, right? but certainly not, you know, someone in their twenties or thirties. I mean, that was virtually unheard of back then, especially if it's type two. I mean, that wasn't something about until much later in life but not anymore. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's so funny. Like I just, 
You're right. It creeps up on you. It becomes commonplace and you don't stop to think, when did that happen? It definitely feels like everybody has cancer. Even in my family, it's like the numbers are pretty, pretty high. And most of it is probably a combination of environmental toxins and things that were in uh, the food that they were eating over time, just kind of weakening their ability to destroy cancer cells. It's, we all have them every now and then, but your body's supposed to be able to eliminate them. And what you said is spot on, because one of the first things that I think of is, that, you know, especially when you look at an environment such as Taiwan, I mean, in Taiwan, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there was no regulation concerning the level of pesticides and vegetables. I mean, you basically sprayed until you killed whatever it was you were trying to kill. And there was nobody standing behind you saying, hey, you've applied too much or this level is too high. I mean, it, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it was non-existent back then. But now it's you know, very you know, highly regulated. And I think because people are slowly but surely, or as I say, nutritionally savvy people are slowly but surely starting to realize that when your body's toxic, it's like, guess what? absorption is inhibited. You can't absorb a lot of things as well. And so that wreaks havoc with your immune system. And just like you said, suddenly your body can't fend off these, you know, rogue cancer cells. And But somebody that has a healthy functioning immune system, it, sh it will never be an issue. So right. yeah, I mean, yeah, people don't really see that connection, you know, between toxicity and cancer. But I mean, there's definitely, I mean, people that have cancer, by definition, there's got to be certain a certain level there. Right. A compromised immune system. Absolutely. So when it comes to building up that skill set in students, are kids still being taught by their parents culinary skills by and large, or is that something that the school system tries to address? Nobody's really teaching. I mean, we have do have some classes where people can learn a little bit about, you know, different types, you know, how to cook various types of cuisine. But I mean, with the younger generation, you really don't see a lot of people learning how to cook. And that's very true out here. I mean, it's, you know, maybe people that are in their, probably in their 50s, hmm. 45, 50 or older. I mean, a lot of those people know how to cook, you know, especially the women. But whereas the younger generation, not that many people know how to cook anymore. Hmm. I mean, it's really kind of surprising. I mean, things that I took for granted when I was growing up. I mean, my mother made sure that we all knew how to cook before we left the house for college. I mean, she used to come to me and she said, I'm not going to have any helpless men in this house. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, we learned how to, how to sew, how to do laundry, how to do all the basic cleaning in the house, you know, cooking. I mean, my mother made sure that we knew uh, how to do all that. And it wasn't just, you know, the women in the family. It was the men too. No helpless right. men in this family. <laughs> And that might have been, was that typical at the time? Like, did you have peers, like boys from other families that were being taught or were boys allowed to just sit there while the girls did all the work? It depended on the family. Yeah. I mean, some families were like mine. Other families were not. Uh, but in our family, my mother was very much like that. She said, you know, if you're, if you're, you may not be rich enough to be able to afford a, a live-in maid. So, you know, you better learn. <laughs> How to cook and do some of these basic things. Absolutely. So, yeah. That, even, even though at the time she was a real pain in the you know what. I mean, there were times it's like, leave me alone. I, wanna, I don't want to do this. I want to be able to relax like all the rest of my friends. 
why do you give me all these chores? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's funny, that's definitely my mom's approach to raising children is that this is, you're studying to have a good foundation for the rest of your life. Like, you're not just supposed to be chilling out all the time. A lot of people view childhood differently. Like, oh, you're just supposed to play this whole time. No, you could be playing and learning something too. Like, how are you going to survive out there? Oh, and it's difficult. You know, if you look at uh, how much you have to spend by dining out, you know, the cost of living in the U.S. is pretty high in a lot of cities now. I mean, a lot higher than when I was growing up. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of cities down south that are actually still very reasonable. Even though people say Atlanta is, you know, it's gotten very expensive. But, hey, you know, compared to L.A. or San Francisco oh. or New York, hey, Atlanta is very cheap. <laughs> Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. I'm living in a 55 plus neighborhood. So we get a lot of people from the West Coast and people tease them about how almost all of them, they come out here and they buy their homes in with cash, even though they're just like regular income, working class people. So the same social class as us, but different part of the country, they come here and they're like, oh, they're giving houses away. They're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Compared to what y'all paid, they are. It is different. I mean, I attended the uh, SNA annual conference in Atlanta back in 2017, and I must say, I was impressed. I really liked that city. Really liked it. I mean, people were nice. Food was great. Hey, I mean, I told people, I said, hey, I could live there. I mean, it was really, I mean, it exceeded my expectations. Oh, great. Oh, yeah. You know, rich culturally. Just, I mean, no complaints. Yeah. Okay, that's awesome. From somebody who has, like, all this international travel experience, that makes me feel good about the part of the country I'm living in. So that's great. Yeah, I mean, SNA, I think, is very good about selecting different cities. I mean, you know, it seems like all the cities, I mean, I started attending SNA, the annual conference back in, I think, 2016. That was with San Antonio. All those places that I've been to have all been you know, really nice. Pretty great. So when it comes to professional development, since you guys aren't dealing with specific regulations when it comes to how much continuing education you have to do, what did you do prior to 2016? Like when you got over there in the early 2000s, what did you do to continue growing your knowledge base? So I know you had your father-in-law as a mentor to help with your culinary mm-hmm. skills. What else did you do? Well, I mean, occasionally we would have certain, you know, certain classes. I mean, a lot of the professional development uh, really took off starting around 2016. That was a major turning point in my career. You know, all of a sudden things became, you know, a lot more structured. I remember we, I guess it all started for me. We had a person uh, who at that time was a parent. And when she lived in the States, uh, she was a nurse. And she said, oh, there's this thing called the SNA Annual Conference. And, and I looked at it and I said, oh, okay. She said, you, know, you should go. And I'm like, okay. And, she's, and, I, and I didn't really know why she was encouraging me, but then I started looking at, you know, I basically researched, the, you know, did a little research on the you know, nature of this particular event. And I said, wow, this is exciting. And I remember all of the other uh, administrators were very supportive. They said, you have to go. And now it's like, it seems like it's an annual tradition. I mean, because yeah. it really uh, opened my eyes. I mean, I learned a lot from, you know, people, you know, what, you know, what are you guys doing in the States? I mean, it's fun to, you know, sit down and talk to a food service director 
or cafeteria employee from, you know, Wheeling, West Virginia, or, you know, Laramie, Wyoming. I mean, I mean, people from all over the place. It's fascinating. Everybody has their own challenges. I mean, they're different. I mean they, they may vary depending on where you live in the U.S., or even people overseas. I mean, I met some people last year from, from Laos. Also oh. met a person. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, I just saw them in there and we started talking and. Yeah, I'm always on the lookout for the international people. So I'm hoping maybe they'll start doing some pre-cons that somehow draw more of those people so I can get them in one room and connect to more. There's so, like you said, there's so many fascinating people at SMA that you're going to learn something from just a conversation with another attendee, not just from what's coming from the podium. Oh, I mean, it's fun. I mean, you know, even looking at St. Louis, my biggest complaint is that they like cut off one day. They reduced the conference by, I guess, one day. You know, it was oh, nice yes. I like that. I like the old format. You know, that yeah. extra day, more time, you know, get in a couple more sessions. Yeah, I mean, but then again, obviously, the majority of people don't feel that way. Otherwise, that change would not have been made. So. Yeah, I think people wanted to save a travel day. And it's different when you've come from so far. It makes more sense to stay longer and get more out of it. But the people who just took like a three-hour flight, they want to go back, get back to, you know, office stuff. That's, I mean, that's hard to imagine. I was absolutely shocked when I heard about that change. Like, no, <laughs> <laughs> it is true. It went by so so fast. Yeah, very much so. I mean, St. Louis, I think, was the first year that they did that. Right, right. I wonder what everybody said. I don't know. Yeah, I think you're right, though. They're making the decisions based on the general consensus of what people feel like they need to be able to come out there. It is a tremendous expense when you send multiple people from your office. So that was one less hotel stay. That was one less day of per diem. That was one less. So maybe money wise, it still appeals to a lot of people to keep that money in their pocket. Okay, I, hope they, I hope they revert back to the uh, original format. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking out the time. As always, if you have any questions, topics you want to cover, or guests you want to suggest for the show, you can reach out to me on social media at Have You Subscribed to the Mailing List Yet? You don't have to lift a finger to make sure new episodes are delivered straight to your inbox. It's totally free, and you can find the link to join the mailing list on my website, www.schoolnutritionrd.com. Okay, see you next week.